From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. When most people think of a historic site or landscape, they don't think about the future. Today's guest is not most people. Sean Phillips is a renewable energy specialist with the National Trust of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, a legendary preservation organization which is charting a new course for historic places. They're using our past to literally power the future. This isn't your granddaddy's preservation, and we're thrilled to bring it to you on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick here with a quick reminder that your support of this podcast keeps us on the air. Please consider making a quick donation at PreserveCast.org and... Give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. It actually helps. Today's episode is also made possible by our very good friends at the 1772 Foundation, one of America's preeminent funders of history and preservation. Thanks for your support. Now, let's get preserving. Sean Phillips is a native of Wales and a current resident of England who has over 15 years of project management and comprehensive environmental engineering consultancy experience, which has included coordinating large multidisciplinary teams, and the management of over 50 renewable energy projects across the United Kingdom. Phillips is currently leading the National Trust of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland's Innovative Renewable Energy Delivery Program, where the nonprofit is utilizing historic properties and landscapes to help meet the island nation's need for clean, safe, and renewable energy. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're very excited to be joined by Sean Phillips, who is a hydro energy specialist with the National Trust, not the National Trust for Historic Preservation here in the United States, but the National Trust of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, always exciting to have somebody from uh, across the pond talk to us. I think you're our, maybe our third guest um, from um, the United Kingdom. And we're really interested in talking with you about this really interesting line of work that you have where it's sort of this um, crossover between historic preservation and renewable energy. So how did you get your, your start in this line of work? Did you, were you a kid that grew up loving history? Did you grow up loving energy? How does, how does one become a hydroenergy specialist with the National Trust? Oh, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I, I guess I've, I've always been interested in, in natural history. I grew up in, in West Wales, surrounded by beautiful coast and countryside. And um, if you've ever been to West Wales, it's rich in history. Uh, my local town has uh, the remnants of the Roman Empire and has impressive Norman castles that go all the way along the River Towie down to the coast. So you, you can't help but be surrounded by history wherever you go. So I guess it, it's sort of absorbed into your very being at a very young age. So from that point of view, I think I think we do we do grow up loving history because it, it's a part of us. So. Um, and I guess it's a sort of natural jump to use the power of our natural history from around us to, to, to do modern things such as renewable energy, which is, is obviously my interest. So. And so the, the renewable energy field, um, I guess in its current incarnation is young. I mean, we've been using hydro energy probably since the Roman times, speaking of, of the Romans. Um, but when did you get involved in it and, and at what level? How did you sort of find your way into this career? Um, a little bit of a, a round robin, really. Um, I, I started out um, doing an undergraduate degree in, in conservation. And um, my master's, uh, when, I, when I undertook my master's, I, I went into re um, rehabilitation of land um, and worked in, in the sort of oil and hydrocarbon industry for a while. 
And I, I realized that this is pretty dirty work and decided that I, I wanted to change tack. And in 2009, I applied to a, a small little organization in mid Wales called Dulles, um, who are pretty much world leaders in renewable energy. And I, I basically got an, uh, a start as a project manager there. Um, and as, as you say, the renewable energy field, whilst it had been going pretty much since the 70s in the UK quite, quite steadily, it had actually exploded in 2009, where the government um, incentivized the, the deployment of renewable energy and the whole industry um, from large-scale wind right down to domestic PV, uh, everybody was learning together. So from right from, from that point, really, um, is when I, I started to get really into it and um, it's become pretty much a big part of my life since. And you specifically are a project manager for this type of work. So maybe before we even jump into the connection here now in your employment with the National Trust, what does that mean? Like on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, obviously now we're all in lockdown and quarantine and things like that. So I'm sure it's a little different than it was in years past. But from, um, I think what you've previously told me is your Georgian home, sitting in your, in your 18th yeah. century Georgian home, how do, you, how do you do this work? What does that mean? Are you doing permitting, construction? What, do, what does Sean Phillips do on a day-to-day basis? So on a day-to-day basis, um, we, we're, I'm principally engaged in, in the development and construction of hydro projects, so uh, hydropower projects. So um, that, that's right from inception. So looking at whether a site is technically feasible um, to hold uh, a hydropower station, um, which involves usually a hill and a lot of rain, um, which luckily we have in the UK. And Basically, it means that um, you have to scope scope out what what technically the, the hillside can achieve, and also what what are the consenting requirements in order to ensure that we build a scheme that's appropriate and and landscape uh, and and sitting within the landscape. So, um, for hydro, we take we undertake a lot of surveys before we actually seek consent from our local government. Um, and that that's, that involves ecology surveys, cultural heritage and archaeological surveys, hydrology surveys. Uh, we do some aquatic surveys to ensure that we, we don't harm any fish. Um, we look at um, a transport and access to make sure that we can get equipment there and that it's not too disruptive to the communities. Um, we make sure that there is actually grid so we can connect the electric and, and distribute it. Um, so all these surveys... Um, come together and we start to design uh, a, a project uh, that really just fits within the landscape um, and that we can build um, with minimal impact really so that, that's what that's what we uh, do in the consenting and then once we receive consent after consultation with our local communities um, we we proceed to construction and um, we, we see that right through from um, its detailed design through to appointing our contractors and our, our suppliers and making sure that it all goes well on site. So um, it's, yeah, it's busy time at the moment. We're currently building four hydros uh, in the Lake District. Well, let's talk a little bit about that and, and about the Lake District, which is a beautiful place for people who aren't familiar with it. So you're working um, for the National Trust of England, Wales in Northern Ireland. Um, 
And it's an organization that I think probably, particularly in the minds of most Americans, sort of conjures up images of these, you know, grand estates, beautiful landscapes, um, but maybe not always renewable energy. Um, and which is why we wanted to have you on because it's just so fascinating the work that you do and where you do it. So when did they decide to jump into this work? Why is a historic preservation group doing renewable energy? No, it's a good question. Um, so the National Trust have actually got a lot of historic uh, water mills and um, equipment that have, have powered some of these estates from from early Victorian times. Um, so, but they actually started taking on and, and investing in renewable energy since I think the 1980s. And then by 2010, I think they'd installed about one megawatt of power um, and individuals across the entire organization who were committed to this were, were busy doing this. And then, and this included a variety of things like solar PV, a hydropower, um, and then heating technologies such as air source heat pumps, biomass, uh, marine source heat pumps, those kind of things. But in 2008, the trust decided to sort of formalize the process because they wanted to accelerate their deployment. And they published a policy called Grow Your Own, which was to build renewables on our own estate using our own natural resources um, and to aid the removal um, of oil from our historic buildings, which pose uh, a pollution risk. Um, a lot of them are either in beautiful places and the deliveries are sometimes precarious or it's very difficult to get them in. Um, and there's always that risk of spillage. Um, so in 2013, the Trust set up a renewable investment program, um, which is what I'm part of. And uh, they really significantly ramped up the deployment of heating power and I think by the end of the year, we will have developed, uh, yeah, completed 79 projects, which is over 22 gigawatt hours of um, installed renewable generation, uh, which is about 12 megawatts. So for the layperson, that's the equivalent of powering about 6,000 homes, families' homes, or about 6,500 tons of CO2 removed from, from, from the atmosphere. So, and we've also removed the need for over 1 million litres of oil in our properties. So that's what we've been busy doing as an organisation. Right. I mean, it's a huge amount of work. And, it, and is it happening, happening primarily, and you, know, you mentioned the Lake District before. You want to talk a little bit about that place? And is that where the majority of this work is happening? And, and I guess if so, why? Um, not not just the Lake District, um, okay. all all over the UK. Um, uh, well, in terms of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, so the hydros were pretty we're pretty restricted in where we can put them. So in the Lake District, because we've got lovely hills and a lot of water, and the same in Wales, in North Wales, in Snowdonia, very much the same uh, terrain, um, big hills, much bigger hills, and and a lot more water. So um, for hydro, perfect. And then in the southwest and the southeast, uh, we have a lot more solar, uh, and that's simply as a product of it being sunnier. Um, so, and then heat all over, really, all over our properties. We have, we have many heat systems. Um, so, for example, um, uh, the joint giant causeway hotel in Northern Ireland, um, we have a biomass system there that supplies all the heating and hot water for the hotel. Uh, and uh, one of my colleagues installed that in just three days. So an amazing um, just feat of engineering, really, to get that in in such a short time. And then um, we have another um, biomass system at Belton, um, which is 1.2 megawatts, and that heats 16 buildings across the estate. So 
um, it's where we're all over, really. Wherever there's a need um, and a want is where we'll be. And is it primarily um, powering activities on trust sites or does it power things in the adjoining communities? I guess it goes into the grid. So in theory, it's kind of just going into the larger pool. But but is that what the focus obviously is on? you know, repairing and making the environment better. Um, I'm sure cutting costs doesn't hurt, right? You don't have to buy oil. Yeah, so that's absolutely. a that's a good thing. And particularly right now when all all trusts across the, the world are under a lot of stress financially, I'm sure it doesn't hurt that they don't have to buy as much oil as they used to. Um, no, but what is the what's the what's the goal in terms of the energy production? What are you trying to do with it? So uh, for us, um, ideally, we would like to supply on site, but where, where we can't supply on site, um, we work with our communities to ensure that we can distribute to, to those communities and farms. So in, for example, in Borrowdale, um, we're working with a third party landowner um, on, on a hydro scheme there, and the electricity from that will be distributed to the local grid network. Um, again, in Snowdonia as well, we, we work in, a, uh, we're a member of a cooperative whereby we are the generator for a local community and we work with the community so that we can help set the electricity price um, and that hopefully helps them save money as well. So it's a win-win for us um, and for the local community um, and it's something we're very passionate about in rolling out across the UK. But with regards to our heat and our solar, we primarily try to power our own houses and, and estates. Um, but where we do have a little bit of surplus, we'll, we'll always push that to the grid if we're allowed. And do you have any sense for percentages of trust sites that are now powered renewably? Or is there a lot of work left to be done? Or have you done a lot of sites? How, where, what's, what's, the, what's it look like? So by 2020, our goal was to be um, have our, our heat and power, 50% uh, uh, of our heat and power. Um, but that was against a 2008 baseline when we set up the program. And like any good organization, they grow. And um, we use a bit more energy than uh, we set out or anticipated at the start of the program. So um, we're, we're getting there, um, but uh, there's still a way to go. And um, this year, um, the trust announced that it was going to go net zero by 2030. So we're going to go steady on on, on, on net zero and our decarbonisation ambitions. Um, how we do that in light of COVID uh, is going to be a challenge, but we're, we're still very committed as an organisation to meeting that. Sounds like, sounds like job security to me. If, if you've got to go to net zero by 2030, they need you to, to really <laughs> hustle, I think, Sean. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's lots of work to do, so fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I'm curious before um, we take a quick break here, uh, before COVID, I guess, obviously, how much travel were you doing to these different places? I mean, Snowdonia is a pretty remote place, as far as I understand it, and uh, you know, obviously, these places in context of the United States are just sort of a hop, skip, and a jump. But for you, they're they're, <laughs> they're significant travel. How often are you hitting the road or the rail, I guess, to to visit these sites? Yeah, um, so I, I'm lucky that I live in the Midlands, so I can get into Snowdonia and I can go up to the lakes um, quite quite easily. But the the Snowdonia is about two hours away, um, and and the Lake District three hours. West Lakes about four hours, just because the roads get narrower and smaller and traffic slows. Um, but um, and I'm usually up there, um, usually about 
well, twice a month for a couple of days. So, um, and then most of my work is is either um, from from the Midlands um, and my my local hub. But um, yeah, it's 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 dramatically changed during COVID. Where um, I've been to the lakes in the last three months, I've only been to the lakes twice, and it was a, a real treat actually to get out and see sights. Um, and and to meet colleagues, you know, albeit socially distanced, but to to wave and and to do work together. That seems things you take for granted um, prior to this just seem so privileged now. Yeah. So I, I very much hope to go back to the Lake District soon. Yeah, and hopefully maybe a a silver lining of all of this is people sort of recognizing the general public recognizing the value of place and why we protect places like the Lake District and Snowdonia and. All, all those like them Absolutely. across the world. So let's take a quick break here. And then when we come back, um, I want to talk to you about some of the lessons learned and maybe advice you might give to others trying to do this work. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about the Honorable Barbara Mikulski, the longest-serving woman in Congress in American history, read by Jana Carey, Director of Operations at Preservation Maryland. Barbara Mikulski was born only 16 years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Mikulski earned bachelor's and master's degrees, then became a social worker, helping both children and seniors in need. From there, she stepped up to help save a city in need, her hometown of Baltimore. A decision had been made to build a highway through the heart of the city, a highway that could potentially transform Baltimore for the worse by cutting through its neighborhoods. She intervened and led a successful citizens' movement to block the construction. A short time later, Mikulski successfully ran for the Baltimore City Council, and from there she went on to win five consecutive elections for the U.S. House of Representatives, and then five consecutive elections for the U.S. Senate. When Barbara Mikulski took office in 1987, she was the first Democratic woman to be elected to the Senate in her own right. Every other woman had been appointed or succeeded a deceased husband. There were more gender issues, of course, Mikulski told The New Yorker magazine that the Senate dress code required that women wear dresses or skirts. She defied that dress code and started wearing pants in a symbolic show of equality. She said it was a small step for Barbara Mikulski, but a giant step for womankind. She was sometimes told that she didn't look the part. She understood the criticism for what it was. She said, a lot of Americans black or white or female are always told they don't look the part. It's one of the oldest code words. Mikulski also led the way on vitally important initiatives that transformed how we understand and negotiate the world. She ran point on one of our country's greatest 
scientific advances, the development and deployment of the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes. She introduced the Paycheck Fairness Act to try to close the gap between what women and men earn for doing the same jobs. Mikulski retired from the Senate in 2016, the longest serving woman in Congress in U.S. history. To the great good fortune of Marylanders, Americans, and citizens of the world, Barbara Mikulski never stood down and always stood up, and now she is recognized for looking very much the part of an American hero. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, um, we are joined by Sean Phillips, who is a hydroenergy specialist with the National Trust of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Uh, We've been talking all about her work and and the dramatic expansion of renewable energy in the portfolio of the National Trust, how they do their work all across um, their footprint. And I guess given the number of projects that you've done, Um, I imagine you've learned quite a bit over these years. And if a group here in the United States or elsewhere were considering this kind of work, I'm I'm curious about your, the pointers or the advice you might give them. Do you have a, a, I don't know if it's a favorite type of renewable energy or one that you think is really easy to deploy that you would want them or say, Hey, I would start here, focus on this. Or is it so site dependent? How, how would you recommend the type of renewable energy? Cause I think it's so interesting that you guys do so much hydro and we don't really hear about hydro here in the United States, particularly sort of the small hydro that you guys are doing. Yeah, obviously hydro is my favorite. Um, but I would say, um, First of all, if you if you are a party and you're interested in in doing renewables, fantastic. Um, but what I would what I would advise is that you get together really early on and understand what you want to achieve before you set out. So try try and set the parameters. So don't tie yourself into a particular technology, for example, and and look for what you're trying to replace. And also the shape of your consumption, because often the, the shape of, of the energy you use and when you use it and what time of day or month of the year will determine pretty much what technology is best suited, depending on what resources you have available to you. Um, and I, I think that's probably sound advice. Um, often what you find is that people's con- domestic consumption increases in the winter and you would want to find a technology that is perhaps better suited to that so sometimes wind or or hydro are more winter because the weather's often windier and wetter in the winter than it is in the in the summer but if you have a higher demand in the in the summer then solar solar is the way to go but often you might find that you have resources to to have a range of renewable technologies and and you can you can match your consumption curve which is the absolute ideal that's what everyone tries to achieve in my industry um, because you, you, you're trying to offset at real time. Um, so I would, I would recommend that you try, try and find out about your shape of your organisation or, or the property that you're interested in and then speak to experienced specialists because what we find is that in the long run they'll save you time uh, and money um, and design you an, an asset that's easier to look after and maintain um, within the historic nature of your building. Um, and that I think is really important because often as, as you will be aware, these historic buildings don't behave 
as you would like them to and they have their quirks and you you have to sort of design for that as best you can you won't get it you won't get it 100 right but you, you'll get it a good way there so is there a is there a certain property that lends itself to this kind of work or can you have you have you maybe the, the better way of asking this is have you ever run up against a property where you're like we can't deploy renewables here we don't we cannot figure it out um, because it's either it's too sensitive or we can't find the right site for it or um, do, does every place have some potential I, I would like to say from the start that I, I would like to think they do <laughs> um, but setting and scale is really important to us at the National Trust. And each property, as, you, as you, you're aware, is, is very unique and has its own self, a sense of place and importance. And we, we have to be really sensitive to that. But what I would say is there's no fixed rules. And um, it, it's amazing the creativity of our teams uh, and, our, and our staff to, to try and make things work. Um, we, have, we have some really challenging sites that we haven't quite overcome yet. And a, and a good example of that, I guess, is Avebury, um, which is a set of sort of Neolithic stones, um, similar to Stonehenge. And um, it's, it has archaeology everywhere. It's, it's dripping in archaeology. There is not a place where you could put something without finding something. It's so interesting. Um, and for us, we, we couldn't put a, a field of PV solar panels because obviously that affects its setting uh, and its sense of place. You know, people come to admire these stones and the, the, the heritage and, and, and sort of um, the history that's tied to them. It's a very calming and special place and for us to introduce a sort of industrial feature to something that is so ancient would be incongruous um and i think there's there's heating solutions that can be deployed but they they have to be carefully hidden or screened in order to for it, they, them not to detract um so and and there are ways we can do this and, and we're working on it but uh it, some, some sites are far more difficult than others, but we'll get there. I mean, a good example is that you wouldn't necessarily expect a um, solar panel array to be placed on, on a grade one listed castle, but that's what we have at Dunster. Um, it's hidden just below the crenellations and it's very discreet. Um, so it can be done, um, absolutely can be done. Um, but some, some sites cause us more of a challenge than others. It's almost like the sites that where you do it best, you don't know, right? And I think that I think the problem is sometimes the only times we see it is when it's been done poorly, and you think, oh, well, that's the only way it can be done. Look how terrible that looks. Um, and obviously, a lot. I mean, kind of going back to your comment about the work that you um, do to make sure that. Um, it's being done correctly. There's a lot of planning. This is not just drop a, a solar panel on top and call it a day. Um, that's and 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 perhaps that's a piece of the advice here too. Is that you really have to be thoughtful about this. Um, I am curious, and I think I've asked you this before. And and for listeners, um, you know, the 1772 Foundation connected Sean and I, and we've we've had a chance to speak before this interview. But um, why is hydro so? prominent in the UK and we're just not seeing it at that scale here in the US. Do you have any sense just from sort of the grand scale of your industry? Does it just work better there? Is there just a, a history of it? We just don't see small scale hydro like you're describing. 
I guess, I, I mean, it's for us, uh, we've grown up with it. The most, most rural farms um, prior to the, the grid network would have had some sort of hydropower um, turbine um, power in either their machines or, or maybe their house, depending on how grand they were and how rich. Um, and, and I guess we've grown up with it in the UK. So it, it's, it's sort of common practice and we've sort of developed and built on that experience of our ancestors. And I, I guess we, we, we also have a lot of rivers a lot of hills um, and a, a lot of different valleys and catchments. So, and they're all, I guess they're all owned by lots of different people. So over time you, you amass this amount of, of power um, with, without even really noticing it. Um, and it's really effective. Everybody understands it. The communities understand it. And and often we get a lot of people saying, oh, well, why haven't you put one on this stream yet? Or, <laughs> um, and it often it, it would have had one. The I think we've we've developed quite a few now where actually there's a, there's an existing old powerhouse um, that we've refurbished. Um, one example of that is Drogo um, down in in Devon, um, where um, we've uh, refurbished a um, uh, Edwardian hydro um, powerhouse and its turbines. Uh, and the lead and pipe, the concrete pipeline um, that runs to it uh, on the River Tame. And that's a beautiful um, example of Edwardian um, power engineering. It's really remarkable. Perhaps we need to take a closer look at it. And I, I wonder too, I have nothing to back this up, but I wonder too if it, if part of it is because our hydro experience was massive, right? The Hoover Dam and Grand Coulee and um, not always the most environmentally friendly uh, projects um, that were conducted. And I think in a lot of people's mind, that is hydro. And obviously you're not, you're not uh, damming entire rivers um, on behalf of the National Trust. <laughs> no, no, we're certainly not. We have um, very low profile weirs. So when the river gets up to a certain level, it just flows over it and we capture a proportion of that and then send it down the hill via a pipe. So um, a lot different. So, um, no dams, um, certainly, and certainly not anything like the power of, of Hoover Dam, um, mm-hmm. very, very far from it. But, um, but yeah, you guys, you have some incredible hydros, um, which, you know, they have been hugely controversial, but they do bring a lot of power to a lot of communities. So, um, so speaking of public response, I mean, you know, there's obviously there's been that, that, that our experience and our heritage of hydro is not exactly the same. Um, what's been the public response to your work? Um, it, it sound, I mean, you mentioned something where it's like, well, how come we don't have one on this stream yet? So that suggests that people like the work that you do. Do you get out, see people? Are they happy with what's happening around them? Yeah, I, I, the majority are really supportive. Um, and I, I think it is that link. Um, they, they understand the technology. Um, we often get people taking detours um, from, from their fair walks to come down when they see a construction project and, and talk about things. Um, and we found a really good electrician by um by someone just being uh, curious about a project so it's always good to talk to people because most people have got really interesting skills so um I, yeah i mean we we talk to our communities and, and to the public and obviously our members uh, in the trust um about our projects and we, we usually before we go into planning and consensus we, we usually 
we look at um, uh, consulting widely, really, um, and we invite people's comments. And uh, we usually put a little web page uh, about the proposal that we want to put forward um, and ask people what they think. And, and people are really constructive, actually. Um, they, they say they, we often find out um, things that we didn't know about the estate um, and often just different ways of working. Um, the communities know, know their area the best um, and often they find innovative ways of, of changing um, directions of access or helping, helping farmers uh, farm differently while we construct and, and all these things that help us build um, better really um, and, and help the community restore, restore their land because we want when we build a hydro we want to leave it in a better condition than when we arrived. Um, so we, we, we build walls, we rehang gates, uh, we plant some trees, um, and we just make, make the ground good um, just so that we're good neighbours and we continue to be. So um, speaking of your website uh, and outreach that you folks do, where can people learn more if they want to learn more about the projects that you're doing or the work that you're doing on renewable energy? Is there a place you could send them to? Yeah, so if you want to find out about the National Trust um, and the work it's doing with its renewables program, um, have a look at our website. Um, and we have some nice videos of Greenburn um, in construction and some videos of it before and some videos of it afterwards. So you can see you can see what we do, how messy we make the place, but we promise that we always try and put it back. Um, and also there's there's really great for from a general interest point of view, there's some really great just YouTube videos on the basics of, of renewable generations, but I nothing beats finding uh, a local interest group who have built some hydros or built any renewables, even if it's solar or put in a new heat pump and going to visit because um, actually you learn so much from other people by just going to see their sites and talk about the challenges that they had. Um, and I would, if you if you ever want to come and see any of the National Trust hydros uh, or or any of our renewable technologies, you'll be more than welcome. Fantastic. Well, when when the uh, the lights come on again and we can travel all over the world, um, we would love to do that. And I know uh, we've talked about maybe trying to get you over here to talk to folks here in the United States about the great work that you're doing. Um, before we leave, um, normally the most difficult question that we answer anyone, particularly somebody who grew up immersed in history, what is your favorite historic place or site? It's a big question, Nicholas, that because I've got hundreds, but there's one that I think tips the balance for me, and that is Quarry Bank Mill, um, which was built in 1784, I think, um, and it's just outside Manchester, and it's a historic textile mill, but still in operation and still weaving, um, and that has, obviously, it has a hydro on it, uh, on the River Bollin, um, which powers the electricity, not not machines, um, and the site has um, a water-powered, um, a water mill, a water wheel, and it's the largest UK water wheel, um, and it, it is huge, it is brilliant, um, and it also has beam engines, and when, when the mill is up and running, it's loud, and it's just fascinating, and my colleagues at the National Trust really give you a great a great tour um, and it, it's just a brilliant place and beautiful building set by the river bowling it has hydro it has beautiful walled gardens and and um, greenhouses yeah just 
really special place for that. Well, that is a fantastic answer. It's also, I think, our first textile mill uh, answer, um, which is 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 great. Um, and it's been so fun to talk with you. So interesting to hear about the work that you're doing. And we'd love to have you back soon and hope to, hope to see you in person someday when uh, everyone is healthy again uh, and you stay healthy as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.